Well, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are so glad that you're here this morning. I want to welcome you at this time, especially uh, welcome those who are joining us online. We have overflowing baskets here um, up front. And so what a, what a wonderful thing, especially as we begin to meditate on God's goodness and his graciousness and everything that he's done for us. Well, we are in a series based on Romans 8, a short series. Uh, we began it last week, and I'm going to kind of deal with the middle of it this week, and then we'll wrap it up next week. But we want to begin with the Word of God. And so if you have a Bible, you can follow along. This is Romans 8, verses 12 through 25. So then, brother, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be, to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord. And so uh, we learned last week that Romans 8 is an important chapter that looks backwards and also looks forwards. And so it contains themes, biblical themes, that are bigger than the chapter itself. And so the first section is about what you see up here on the screen, God's assurance. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is about abundant living, true living, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And it's also about our hope in the resurrection of our bodies. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so again, that, that's just the first 11 verses right there. And Romans 8 does not slow down. It continues to explore these deep themes while also introducing us to new ones. And so as we open the pages of Scripture, 
We need to remember two things. First, we need to remember that we are opening the living Word of God. And so we should expect to encounter Christ. We should expect to be transformed in some way. This is no ordinary book. And if God's Word is not living in us and leading us to change, then something is wrong. We're not engaging it as we should. And second, we need to understand that when we open the pages of the Bible, we are entering a strange world. Scripture is set in a culture that is different from our own. And these books were addressed to people who lived long ago and in lands far away. Now, we don't have to be experts in ancient culture to understand the Bible. But it is helpful to know a thing or two. It's helpful to understand that things were different back then. And the more that we know about the story of Israel, and the more that we know about the Greco-Roman world, the more clearly we see some of the nuances that we come across in the text. And this is certainly true of our text this morning. We have to remember that, that Paul is writing to a Roman church that is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And there are things in this text, things that we just read, that speak to both of these groups. And we want to explore um, parts of, of this this morning. And so first, to understand Romans, it's helpful to know the story of the Exodus. Because there are allusions to Exodus throughout the entire book of Romans. We see this in just a few verses that, that we read today. Uh, for instance, in verse 15, Paul mentions slavery and encourages his readers not to return to their former ways. In verse 22, he speaks of the groanings of creation, and we hear echoes of the groanings of the Israelite people wanting to be rescued. And so the chapters of Romans follow the Exodus story. Romans 6, with its teachings on baptism, correspond to the crossing of the Red Sea. Romans 7, with its focus on sin, corresponds to the wilderness wanderings. And this section of Romans that we're in right now, Romans 8, corresponds with Moses standing on the banks of the Jordan and pleading with his people to make a choice. And if you'll remember that in the book of Deuteronomy, that, that he's standing on those, those banks of the Jordan and he presents two options. He says, here is death, here is life, choose life. And the Jewish recipients of this letter would have easily picked up on these illusions. And Paul is explaining how their situation right now is just like that of their ancestors. They have crossed the Red Sea. They have been baptized. They have been redeemed. They have spent time in the wilderness. They have been tested. They have endured persecution. Now they must choose what will it be. Will it be life or will it be death? Will it be the way of the Spirit or will it be the way of the flesh? And at the very end of Exodus, you'll remember that the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And then the people of God are led by the glory of the Lord throughout the wilderness. They followed the, the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night 
And, and Paul is asking these believers, and he's asking us as well to do the same thing. He's reminding them and us that, that we have been filled with the Spirit of God. God's presence now lives in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now we need to be led by the Spirit. We need to follow the path of the Spirit and not go astray. And the culmination of this plea is summed up in verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. As soon as the, the Hebrew people escaped Pharaoh and his army, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to enter again into slavery. Because at least in Egypt, they knew where their next meal was coming from. They were afraid. And they allowed fear to, to guide them rather than God. And Paul is saying, remember what happened. Remember your ancestors. Now, we should not easily dismiss this fear. It's, it's kind of easy for us to look back on this and kind of say, oh, those foolish Hebrew people. But, but we need to be careful here. Because to be hungry is a scary thing. To look death in the face is frightening. And fear is a powerful motivator. And we all fall victim to it. We are surrounded by forces who want us to be afraid so that they can exercise some control over our lives. The 24-hour news networks want us to be afraid so we will keep watching. Pundits and podcasters want us to be afraid so we will keep listening. Politicians want us to be afraid so we will vote how they want us to vote. Companies want us to be afraid so, they, so we'll keep buying their products and on and on and on. Fear is a force that, that we all have to reckon with. But Romans 8.15 says we should not be motivated by fear. Now that is easier said than done because we all wrestle with fear. It's always looking over our shoulders. It's always whispering in our ears. Now we don't all wrestle with the same fear. We wrestle with different fears. But here's one thing that we need to do. We don't need to look down upon our brothers and sisters in Christ because they fear differently than we do. We don't need to judge people because of their fear while we keep our own fear a secret. That's not what we should do. Instead, we need to just be honest with ourselves. And we need to all examine our own fears. And we need to remember these two verses in Romans 8. We're not to be motivated by fear because we are children of God. We don't have to fear because we belong to God. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of this over and over again. To fear is the way of the flesh. To trust in God is the way of the spirit and the way to life. Now, astute readers of Scripture will pick up on all of the, the Exodus themes in Romans. They will catch all these appeals made by Paul based upon their history. But, but the Jewish Christians are not the only ones that Paul is writing to. He's also writing to Gentile Christians, and he has a word for them as well. 
And so to understand Romans, it's helpful to know something about adoption in the Roman Empire. Now, this message, I, I'm going to admit up front, is not as clear to many of us because we just don't spend our spare time reading, you know, ancient Roman history. But, but here's what we need to know. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. This is the capital of the Roman Empire. And it would be difficult for any of them to avoid the, the news of Roman politics. And so we can expect all of these Christians to know something about it. And here's what is important. The first five Roman emperors were adopted. They weren't just born into a royal family. They were chosen, they were adopted, and they received a kingdom. And this would be in the minds of all the Christians who were reading this letter. And this changes how we think about adoption. Because you see, we tend to think about adoption as joining the family and it changing our relationship with God. And that's true, that's part of it. But that's not all of it. We are receiving a kingdom. And adoption here, at least in Romans 8, is more about mission than anything else. We are partnering with God and Christ. Notice what is written in verse 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Some versions say that we are joint heirs with Christ. Our role is not to just sit around and do nothing until Jesus returns. Our role is to actively participate in the kingdom now. And this echoes our role from the very beginning of Scripture. God created us in his image. And that passage that we know so well is not just about our identity, it's about our vocation as well. We are to go and we are to image God on this earth. We are to be God's representatives. We are to be temple people where heaven and earth meet. And Paul touches on all of this earlier in the letter when he writes, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign or rule in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We are to reign in life. What does this mean? It means that we've been adopted. It means that we are joint heirs with Christ. It means that we are to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. We are to steward what God has given us in ways that reflect his goodness and his rule. We are to live in such a way that God is glorified in everything that we do. It means that people should look at our lives and they should see a difference because we have ordered our lives according to the way of the Spirit, the way of Jesus. And finally, Paul reminds us again of where all of this is heading. Last week we looked at his emphasis on resurrection in verse 11, where it says, The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. 
And so God is going to redeem our mortal bodies. Death is not going to win. And this is good news, but this is not all. This is not the end of the story. God also has plans to redeem all creation. Because you see, creation has been subjected to futility and decay. As I discussed a few weeks ago in the the sermon dealing with Johnny Cash, sin is bigger than we often give it credit for. The sin of Adam and Eve did not just affect them. It wasn't just personal. It affected creation as well. I want you to notice what happens right after the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, verses 16 through 18. It says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So there are a couple of things that are introduced into the world because of sin. Pain is one. Thorns and thistles are another. And we could keep adding to that list. We could add death. We could add disease. All of these are the result of sin. Because none of these were originally a part of God's good creation. Creation suffers because of the sin of humanity. Now, it's popular to say nowadays that it does not matter what we do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. You've heard that before. It doesn't matter what I do as long as I don't hurt anyone else. And I want to suggest that that is a lie. It does matter. Adam and Eve had no one else to hurt. But guess what? Their sin has affected all of humanity. It has affected all of creation. And so sin is a cancer. And once we release it into the world, it spreads. And we see this in Romans 8 as Paul describes the longing of creation for what is to come. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." So what is creation longing for? Creation is longing for redemption. God is not going to allow sin to win. God is not going to allow sin to just get away 
with corrupting his good creation. He plans on redeeming it just as he plans on redeeming us. And so what is it that we are waiting for? We're reminded in verse 23. And not only the creation, so that first part, he's just talking about creation. Now he talks about us, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting on the same thing as creation. We are waiting on redemption. But redemption of what? Paul tells us we are waiting on the redemption of our bodies. Again, pay attention to what is said and what is not said. Paul does not say we're all waiting around to die and go to heaven. That's not the plan. The plan is to redeem everything that has been corrupted by sin. The plan is to redeem creation and our bodies so that we can live with God forever in a new creation. This is often what in Scripture is referred to as the new heavens and the new earth. And we see this in passages like Acts chapter 3, where Peter is preaching to a crowd of people, and he says, Repent then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. We are to repent and turn to God so that we can experience God's restoration of all things. This is God's plan. We're waiting for Jesus to come back from heaven to return so that all this can happen. God is not going to abandon us. God is not going to abandon his creation. He hears our cries and he has a plan to undo everything that is wrong with the world. He has a plan to redeem everything that has been corrupted by sin. He has a plan to defeat death, disease, and decay once and for all and redeem our bodies as well as creation itself. So we hope for what we do not see. And we wait for it with patience. What does it mean to faithfully wait? You know, the early church pondered this question. Because patience was an important virtue to them. Waiting did not mean just sitting around and doing nothing. In the face of great persecution... The early church did much. Faithful waiting to them meant feeding the poor, caring for the sick, taking in orphans, helping people in need. Faithful waiting looks a lot like the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for the day when Jesus will return and all wrongs will be righted. We long for the day when we will experience the redemption of all things. We long for the day when, when death will be no more and our bodies will be raised from the grave. This is kingdom come. This is God's will being done. This is what we're waiting for. So how do we wait? We wait 
by doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. We wait by following in the footsteps of the early church. And we wait by doing this over and over and over again. It does not matter what's on the news. It does not matter how the economy is doing. It does not matter what's happening in Washington or London or Beijing. It does not matter whatever people are worried about today, and it'll be something different tomorrow. What matters is this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. We get up, we pray, and then we go out to do God's will on earth as is in heaven. And we do it over and over and over again. And this is what matters. This is what makes a difference in the world. This is what changes lives and makes the world a better place to live. This is faithful waiting. And so I ask you this morning to join me in praying the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Today we have woken up. God has blessed us with another day. We have prayed. So now it's time to go and to do. Won't you stand this morning and receive this blessing from the book of Numbers? May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. If you're here this morning and you're in need of prayer, if you're here this morning and you're not living in the kingdom of God, but you want to change that, then we would love to help you. Won't you come now and make it known as we sing.